when it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Hi, everybody. Welcome to Dan Snow's History Hit. I'm talking about the Himalaya as the author of the new book, John Kay, legendary British historian, journalist, and lecturer, calls them. And he should know because he's just written a book about the Himalaya, about exploring the roof of the world, about the history of the mountains, the people, the beliefs, and attempts by outsiders to conquer and exploit them. Now, Himalaya means abode, the realm of snow. So perhaps I should change the name of this podcast to Himalaya, the towering abode of snow that dwarfs all who approach. Anyway, that's my hubristic flight of fancy. I'll just get on with the podcast now. The Himalaya is such an extraordinary, such an exceptional part of the world. Nearly all the highest mountain peaks on Earth, 50,000 glaciers. One third of all of us, of all of us human beings, depend on the Himalayas for fresh water. It's almost as big as Europe, and yet the population is scattered so thinly throughout the area. The geology is unstable as tectonic plates shift and clash beneath those mountains driving them ever higher. And usefully, what a great metaphor, the borders, the political aspirations of neighbouring countries grind unevenly against each other in that region too. It's a part of the world that matters, folks. I hope you enjoy this podcast with John Kay. John, thank you very much for coming on the podcast. Thank you for asking it. Tell me about the geography of the Himalaya. What are we talking? How big, how wide, how inaccessible, how high? The region I call the Himalaya, basically if you look at a map of Asia, it's a great purple and white splodge in the middle. It's ground over an average height of 10,000 feet, and it's vast. East to west, it's about 2,500 kilometers. North to south, about 500 kilometers. So there's this great purple-white splodge on the physical map of Asia in the middle of the continent, which is Himalaya, and it includes five or six of the world's highest mountain ranges and, of course, the great Tibetan plateau, the Changtuk. It's like an empty quarter of Tibet, except that it's actually the empty three quarters. So it's a vast area. And the main mountain 
change, a kind of swagged round this Tibetan plateau around the base of it in a sort of long arc. Uh, they include, first of all, the Great Himalaya, the highest mountain range in the world, then the Tarakorans, even higher in places, exactly the most glaciated non-polar region in the world, and then the Hindu Kush, which of course is the mountain range in Afghanistan and northern Pakistan, and the Kunlun, and uh, so on. So there's all these various mountain ranges come together and form a sort of swag round the base of the Tibetan plateau. And does this very distinct geographical region, has it got a religious and political distinctiveness, or has it always been fragmented, divided up into peoples living in valleys or external empires nibbling bits off the edge? Yes, you're quite right. That certainly happened. But I mean, in physical terms, it is a unique eco-zone. It's the only high-altitude eco-zone in the world, the only eco-zone we have, which is entirely over 10,000 feet. But this vast area has, of course, been nibbled away, as you rightly say, by all its neighbours from time to time. Diffusion of Buddhism from India spread into uh, what we calling Himalaya. Then Islam spread into the western extremities of Himalaya and eventually ground to a standstill in the mountains. Mongols and Manchus invaded from the north and the east. And, of course, nowadays the Chinese are busy grabbing what they prefer not to call them Tibet. So it has been subject to an encroachment from all sides throughout history. And this is not only in political and military terms, but also, as you rightly suggest, in cultural terms. So that Tibet, for instance, became the last great kind of repository of Buddhist scholarship, Indian Buddhism's scholarship, long after Buddhism had been extinguished in India itself. In this vast area, the main regions of settlement of population are usually on the fringes, and it's there that you have the greatest variety of, particularly in places like Nepal and Kashmir, the greatest concentration of religious shrines, of temples, of cultural artifacts, and so on, whereas the great Changchang, the great centre of Tibet, is largely empty and has very limited population. So for a place that's really pretty hostile in terms of a way of living, it has had an extraordinary number of invaders or would-be invaders over the centuries. This has led to its fragmentation. If you look at the map, between the, all the little states strung along the south of the Tibetan Plateau, Bhutan, Sikkim, Nepal, Kashmir and Ladakh and so on, Baltistan, Chitral. And these are the real centres of activity of cultural life of political life and so on, rather than in the centre of the region, which, as I said, is largely uninhabited. And those states and principalities and provinces that you've mentioned, have they been traditionally hard to unify because of the geography? And therefore, has there ever been a, a kind of Himalayan empire or polity? The classic example, I suppose, is a 7th century Tibetan empire when Tibet, rather amazingly, had its own empire in Central Asia, which spread not only from what we now think of as Tibet, but also through to places like Uzbekistan and Tajikistan and also into Western China. And this was quite a formidable empire founded by two of Tibet's earliest kings, but it didn't last very long, about 200 years, so in the 7th and 8th centuries AD, or CD. And then the only sort of comparable 
construct that I can think of is the Gurkha Kingdom, which in Nepal and in the 18th century, which again spread from Nepal, from the Gurkha Kingdom, up into Tibet, and also along the Himalayan chain right through to what's now Himachal Pradesh in India. And this was quite a formidable political and military unit, but again, quite short-lived because uh, there was a famous um, Anglo-Nepalese war in 1814 to 16, when the British invaded Nepal and virtually extinguished its militaristic tendencies. So these two short periods, the Tibetan Empire and the Gurkha encroachments, are the only examples I can think of of a Himalayan-based empire or political construct of any size consequence. And what about religion? You've mentioned some of the religions that have permeated the area, but it seems that there are parts of that world in which the same religions claim or assign divine importance to certain features. And and you've got Hindus, Buddhists, Jains. Everyone seems to be drawn to the same places and mountains. Yes, the original, or what's thought to be the original religion in most of Tibet was something called Pot, which is a precursor of Buddhism and was an indigenous belief system which accorded great importance to physical features like the mountains, for instance. The mountains were nearly all personified or deified as individual deities, and deities could, like all deities, they could fight with one another, they could make love to one another, they could collaborate, and they could argue. So the mountains became a very important, not just a feature of the landscape, but a feature of the cultural landscape, a feature of the way of thinking in the region. And pilgrimage is one of the most distinctive features of the whole of Mali. And this isn't just Buddhist or Tibetan Buddhist pilgrimage to mountains, where the Hindu pilgrimages in Kashmir to Harmonite, and there is even some small Islamic pilgrimage activities in what's now northern Pakistan. So the landscape is very much a part of the belief system of all the peoples of Himalaya, and is just as as uh, pilgrimages, it's a characteristic feature of the region, for as long as we know anything about it. You listen to Dan Snow's history. We're talking about the Himalayas or the Himalaya. All coming up. We try to bring you cold, hard facts on Gone Medieval, but January is all about mysteries, impossible riddles from medieval history that defy efforts to solve them. How did the presence of a mysterious saviour from the East turn into devastation? What secrets does a book written in an unknown code hide? Did kings and princes really die when history has assumed they did? I'm Matt Lewis, and in January, we'll see how close we can get to answering the unanswerable and ask how these mysteries might be solved in the future. Hi, I'm Matt Lewis, historian and host of a new chapter of the Echoes of History podcast. If you're an Assassin's Creed fan, and like me, want to be prepared for the launch of Assassin's Creed Shadows later this year, join us on Echoes of History as we head to feudal Japan to explore the real-life history that inspired the latest game from this legendary franchise. Learn about Yasuke, the African warrior who entered the trusted circle of Japan's most powerful warlord. Hear accounts of cultures colliding when Portuguese missionaries landed on Japanese shores. And follow Japan's journey 
through years of division and bitter warfare to unification at the dawn of the modern era. Make sure you catch every episode by following Echoes of History, a Ubisoft podcast brought to you by History Hit, wherever you get your podcasts. You should celebrate yourself every day, but some days you should celebrate with jewellery. Whether you want to commemorate an unforgettable moment or just bring some added sparkle to your collection, Blue Nile can offer you expert guidance and a wide assortment of jewellery of the highest quality at the best price. Go to BlueNile.com today and experience the ease and convenience of shopping Blue Nile, the original online jeweller since 1999. That's BlueNile.com. BlueNile.com. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. Speaking of pilgrimage, tell me about some of the remarkable outsiders that you chart in your book that have become fascinated and bewitched by the Amalia and have helped to open the area up to study and conquest and development by the outside world. Yes, the most interesting scores, I think, were some of the sportsmen who were basically interested in shooting specimens of the outlandish animal forms that one finds the great wild yak, the great Marco Polo sheep, the world's largest sheep, the wild yak is the world's largest bovine creature. So sports were a great attraction, particularly for British travellers in the region. But a lot of these sportsmen explorers were also quite receptive to local culture and quite interested in it. And uh, some of the most entertaining accounts of party travel in Tibet and Himalaya as a whole are from people who'd served on the infamous Young Husband expedition of 1904 when British Indian troops invaded Tibet and when really the modern period of Tibetan history begins. So a lot of these people came as conquerors or part of this military expedition and then were reappointed to assignments for one sort or another in Himalaya and came quite knowledgeable on particular areas. There's a famous man called Bailey. He was always known to his friends as Hatter, H-A-T-T-E-R, Hatter Bailey. And I can only assume that's because they thought he was as mad as a Hatter. He certainly was a most extraordinary man, and he was a crack shot and tremendous wildlife collector and a great explorer. And one of his assignments was to draw up what became known as the McMahon Line between northeast India and Chinese territory in eastern Himalaya. This involved working out where the natural frontier was in terms of the ethnic divide, in terms of the mountains and so on, where the natural frontier would run. As part of that exercise, he was working with a surveyor in the remotest southeastern corner of Tibet, which is quite unlike the rest of Tibet. I mean, it's incredibly wet for a start, has very high rainfall, and there's cloud cover and a lot of snow, and it's very, very difficult to run. It's also where the great river of Tibet, the Sangpo, 
cuts right through the Himalayas to emerge in northeast India in Assam as the Brahmaputra. And so this Hatha Bailey fellow, one of his great expeditions was to try and discover how this river found its way through the mountains. Was it in a succession of amazing waterfalls or cataracts, or did it actually burrow underneath the mountains? And uh, the case for Sankar becoming the Brahmaputra was quickly solved, but uh, how the river actually cut through the mountains was an issue of some geographical interest. And while he was there, he was taking this, uh, what would become the Manlai frontier, further and further west from Chinese territory to Bhutan. And in the course of this, he, he lit on one particular peak, which happened to be one of the most sacred of all Tibet's pilgrimage sites. And while he was in the sanctuary surrounding this peak, he saw a stag that he just couldn't resist. So he shot this stag, and his men were immediately horrified, and there's all sorts of terrible disasters that would overcome the expedition. And they insisted on he performing the pilgrimage, which is basically a circuit of the higher parts of the mountain, by way of penance for this terrible sacrilege that he'd committed. And so he ended up with this sportsman actually performing an act of expiation in the form of a Tibetan pilgrimage to make up for his terrible crime of killing what turned out to be what's called a Sikkim stag. And that's actually probably the last known record of this particular animal because it was extinct by the middle of the 20th century. Characters like this interest me. You know, he was a sportsman who was interested in securing trophies of natural history specimens and so on, but he was also intrigued by the whole question of the relationship between the Himalayan peoples and their terrain and the mountains themselves and how important these natural creatures, mountains in particular, are to the local beneath system. I loved Alexandra David Miel, if that's pronouncing her name right. Yes, that's right. The pronouncing for Alexandra David Miel, she was one of the most unlikely, but also extremely well-informed traveller explorer. She was actually French, so um, she's not called David Neal or something, really, but David Neal. And um, she had been an opera singer. She'd performed at the Hanoi Opera. Those were days when Vietnam and China was French, of course. At some point in her 20s, she had been attracted to Buddhism. And she went to live for a time in Sikkim in the northeast of India and made one or two short excursions into neighboring bits of Tibet. And then her heart became set on getting to Lhasa. She saw Lhasa as offering sublime deliverance. She would be a, a pilgrim like all the other pilgrims, and she would join them and try and reach the forbidden city or forbidden capital of Tibet. And this she performed from China, actually, from Sichuan in uh, western China. She joined a group of pilgrims who were visiting a peak on the border called Kawakapa, and she went round the peak. You do a peregrination around the mountain when you're paying it reverence. And she broke away with this young lava who was her constant companion and struck out for Lhasa. Now, that itinerary is incredibly confusing. She didn't really hold with place names and distances and bearings and so on. And so it's very difficult to trace her exact route. But she and her companion, this young lava, Yongjin, set off from the Chinese border in uh, I think it was about October, and they reached Lhasa in 1924 in time for the New Year celebrations. 
which happened usually in about February. So it was about a four-month march through the most appalling terrain. Of course, travelling just as Tibetan pilgrims, they had to beg their way effectively. And they got into Lhasa, were undetected by the British uh, had representatives at time looking out for people who had broken the British embargo. All travelled into Tibet, and um, they were actually discovered and were eventually sent packing down to Calcutta. Not only were they French, but they had no authorization whatsoever. You needed to have authorization either from the Tibetan government or from the British to get into Tibet in the 1920s. But as I say, her itinerary is a bit frustrating because you can't really tell exactly where she is. She mentions very few placements, but she comes up with all sorts of fascinating insights into Tibetan way of life. She was a great one for the mystical side of Tibetan Buddhism, and so she spent a lot of time observing unexpected rituals and seeing miracles and generally becoming quite an authority on Tibetan Buddhism. And this sustained her afterwards because from India she went back to France and she became a tremendous celebrity and spent really the rest of her life writing books about Tibetan Buddhism and living on the income that they generated in Provence. She lived to 101. It died in 1960-something, I think. An amazing figure. She was also very, very small. Um, she thought that was an advantage in Tibet because no one ever noticed her. Because she, unlike most Europeans, she wasn't taller than Tibetans. She was much smaller. Alexandra David Neal is still a revered figure in Buddhist circles, and her books are still published. And uh, she was a great scholar. She wasn't particularly interested in the wildlife like Hatha Bailey. She wasn't interested in the politics either. She was just interested in entertaining this sublime deliverance that she thought she would achieve by reaching. Lhasa, and she obtained a lot of uh, Buddhist texts which weren't available in India, which was also quite legit. So an amazing woman. I mean, there are one or two other female figures in the story, but she's by far and away the most outstanding and the most reputable. What's happening strategically there today? It sits between three spheres of influence of three want-to-be great powers, India, China, and Russia and its former satellites, although I know that's a expression that could be changing day by day. We've seen border disputes in 2020s, 2021 between China and India. Um, we've got instability now, it looks like, across the former Soviet republics of Central Asia. This is going to become a contested area. Yes, it's still a very contested area. Actually, the real friction nowadays is really between the Indians and the Chinese. I mean, it's an incredibly long frontier, if you include Tibet in China. The China-India frontier, it's fast and, of course, through uh, accordingly difficult terrain most of the way. And there are several kind of pressure points from an extreme northeast. The Indian state of what's called Arunachal Pradesh, the most northeasterly state in India, almost the whole state is claimed by China. They don't think that Arunachal Pradesh is part of India at all. And it's a bit the same at the other extremity of the mountains in the western Himalaya in Ladakh, which is just the Indian bit of Tibet next to Kashmir, where again, Indian and Chinese forces have, in the last year anyway, have come to blows. And, uh, and again, the frontier is disputed. So this is a main source of friction between India and China. But there are others, well, first of all, India and Pakistan, who are disputing the large parts of what used to be northern Kashmir. 
the Pakistanism and they're building an enormous dam on the Indus River in what they call the Gilgit Baltistan region. The Indians claim that this is actually part of the old Kashmir state, which they now claim as theirs in Toto. And so the Pakistanis had great difficulty raising the money for this to build this colossal dam. And in fact, of course, the Chinese have come to their rescue and are happy to embarrass the Indians any way they can. And so the project is being funded largely by China as part of its China-Pakistan economic corridor, which itself is part of Mr. Xi Jinping's Belt and Road Initiative, which is a very elastic construction. It seems to involve just about anywhere that the Chinese have strategic or economic interests. So the section between India and China, the tension between India and Pakistan, then there's all sorts of uncertainties, they say, is about, I mean, Russia was conceived by the British as being the main threat to the region. But that has subsided very much. I mean, as you say, in the Russian satellites, places like Tajikistan, Uzbekistan, Kazakhstan, Kyrgyzstan, and so on, are all now independent, and none of that poses a particular threat to the region because it's still very much subject to good relations with Russia or Russian influence. So that's not such a problem. But China, India, and Pakistan, India, are all disputing large chunks of Himalaya. That makes it very difficult to impose any kind of international supervision of what is, as I explained, this, this absolutely vital high altitude because I'm the only one in the world. John, thank you so much for coming on the podcast. What is the name of your book? The book is called Himalaya, Exploring the Roof of the World. The Roof of the World was a, an Arabic term for the whole region. Nowadays, we normally call it Himalaya. And Himalaya is simply, Hima means in Sanskrit means snow, and Alia means abode. So it means to abode to the land of snow, the realm of snow. Well, we're talking about the realm of snow on the right podcast here. That's what I like. Thank you very much, John Kay, for coming on the pod. Thanks. When it comes to your finances, you think you've done it all. You've saved, you've researched, and you've invested all that you can. Now it's time to take those investments to the next level by using the brand behind every great investor, Yahoo Finance. As America's number one finance destination, Yahoo Finance has everything you need, whether you're a seasoned trader or just dipping your toes into the market. Join the millions of investors who trust Yahoo Finance to guide them on their financial journey. For comprehensive financial news and analysis, visit yahoofinance.com, the number one financial destination, yahoofinance.com. From BBC Radio 4, Britain's biggest paranormal podcast is going on a road trip. I thought in that moment, oh my God, we've summoned something from this board. This is Uncanny USA. He says, somebody's in the house, and I screamed. Listen to Uncanny USA wherever you get your BBC podcasts. If you dare. Thank you for listening to this episode of Dan Snow's History. Please follow this show wherever you get your podcasts. It really helps us and you'll be doing us a big favour. Don't forget you can also listen to all of these podcasts ad-free and watch hundreds of TV documentaries when you subscribe at historyhit.com slash subscribe. As a special gift, you can also get your first three months for just £1 a month 
when you use code DANSNOW at checkout.